We're talking bird mass, we're talking death records, and we're talking motherfucking beef, y'all. I'm Joe. (laughs) And I'm Trace, and we're talking lots of cocaine and lots of glitter, probably in front of and behind the camera, I'm assuming. (gasps) Oh, shocking. (laughs) It was the 70s. Yes, we are talking Phantom of the Paradise. On its 45th anniversary... And coincidentally, also our 45th episode. I don't know. We did not plan that. No, we didn't. No. <laughs> Honestly, had we not done that surprise Scream Resurrection episode, this would have been episode 44. But we were generous and we were like, let's do a bonus episode and, you know, watch that shit. And here we are, episode 45. Wow. So we took a bullet, but it paid off, is what yes. you're saying. And tomorrow's Halloween, too, which is, you know, that's pretty cool. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the anniversary is Halloween. So technically tomorrow, if you're listening to this on release date, is the anniversary. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I continue, I have to announce the guest that we've heard a tiny snippet of audio from already. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, she is one of uh, the leading activists for the queer community. You've probably seen her all over film Twitter. Um, or just Twitter. I don't know. Like, uh, Do we say? like Whatever. Fuck it. Uh, <laughs> and you, you probably read her exceptional work at publications like Playboy, Vulture, Dread Central, Birth Movies Death, and of course, Bloody Disgusting. Please welcome BJ Colangelo. Hello, I'm sorry for, you know, laughing out of my nose into the microphone no. before I was introduced. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love that. But uh, some uh, people started doing that now and I'm like, yes, I laughed. I'm funny. It's I'm just being the vindication nice, that but... he <laughs> Yeah, don't placate him, BJ. Don't, <laughs> don't okay. stoop to his level. <laughs> no, I like to imagine that people laugh mostly at me whenever they listen to us on the radio. More so, I laugh at the two of you arguing with each other like an old married couple. Yes! It's my favorite thing. I just, like, I listen to the podcast on my way to work, and I'll just be like, <laughs> you boys are such cards. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, those boys. No, Joe used to get mad at me when I would, like, purposefully, like, antagonize him, and I'm like, Joe, that's entertaining. If we agree all the time, it's not funny. It's a cute look for you both. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for coming on. Uh, I did want to point out, so, so we asked you on the show several months ago and i sent you the list of things that we could have that you could like you know episodes you could come on i feel like within 60 seconds you replied to me <laughs> and went phantom of paradise more so it's because okay so i fucking love phantom of the paradise mm-hmm. to a level that is probably unhealthy <laughs> and i do musical theater pretty frequently as a performer that's what my college degree is in Mm -hmm. but because i established my i guess my horror cred talking about gender issues or feminism or um, sexuality no one ever like thinks of me when they want to talk about musicals it's always oh here's this really crazy rape revenge film we'll call bj (laughs) to talk about how depressing it is and how you can still enjoy (laughs) depressing stuff but then a musical happens and I never get called. And I'm like, I know about this just as much. Let's talk. 
Like, give me that glam rock nonsense. I, I want to talk about it. I needed it. I need Garrett Graham with a plunger on his face every oh moment of my life. You know, I'm kind of the same way, though. Because, like, I mean, like, I, I'm super into horror, obviously. Like, you know, we do this podcast. We're all in the horror community. Wait, is that why we do this? But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm a really big, well, rom-com person and musical person. So... I, like, like when I karaoke, I do music, I do show tunes and karaoke. I was a high school theater kid. I didn't get a degree in theater, but I did do like high school theater when I was growing up. And I, I mean, I can't sing very well, but I still sing. But so I was actually very excited to see this because I'd never seen it before. I'd seen like, I think when you mentioned like, you know, rock, like rock opera, horror, musical, people typically jump to Rocky Horror. Yes. This one's not mentioned as much until honestly, recently, I feel like I've been hearing about it a lot more like Among the Waves. I think the fan with a paradise sort of had this Halloween three thing happen where mm. because of the internet and our ability to talk to one another, it sort of snuck out of, Oh, Hey, have you seen this? And then everyone came out of the woodwork of, I love this movie, but I've never known anyone else who's loved this movie. So now we all need to talk about it. Yeah. And I, I must say I'm one of those random people that I don't dislike Rocky horror picture show. It's just never, I think I saw it like, I saw it in college. I think maybe it was too late in life. I like it fine. It's not one of my favorites. And I will say that I did enjoy this on a first time viewing more so than I enjoyed Rocky Horror on, as, on a first that time That doesn't viewing. surprise me at all, actually. And this that's coming from somebody who was in a Rocky Horror cast for mm-hmm. six years. Ooh. And I've done the show uh, on a professional level multiple times in different roles. Wait, okay, tell us the roles. Because I was <laughs> like, oh, please don't tell me you were just Janet. It's so boring. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Were you Rocky? Were you I've Rocky? never been Rocky. I've oh. been both Magenta and Columbia. Columbia tends to be uh, the one I get the most of. And I'm like not trying to plug another podcast on your podcast. Okay. But Tech the Queer Wolf is doing a Rocky Horror episode. There might be a special sound clip um, that I gifted to them. <laughs> Y'all will have to listen and find no, out. I um, actually, I knew they were doing that because um, I asked them, because the guests they have on that episode, we're covering one of that person's films and mm-hmm. i was like oh fuck like what if they're also covering that film so i checked with brennan to be like hey what are y'all watching with him and he goes oh we're doing rocky horror and i was like oh that's convenient we're doing family of the paradise so <laughs> that, that kind of worked out so Fantastic. prepare for musical theater you glorious queens apparently yeah, halloween is just musical theater week on the gay horror podcast yeah which it should be musical theater week every week. Oh, absolutely. So, okay. So, yeah. Fam of the Paradise, uh, released on Halloween, 1974 by 20th Century Fox. Uh, runtime of 91 minutes, which... So good. It's... I was so happy and impressed with how expeditious this film is, especially in the first act. Like, it oh, just yeah. goes and goes and goes. And I was like... <gasps> like, you know when you're watching a movie and they're like, oh, I have to go somewhere. And you kind of think to yourself, oh, God, I'm going to have to like, watch them like go there. Mm-hmm. This movie just cuts to him being there. And I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. The fact that there's time for a detour to Sing Sing Prison that doesn't overextend its welcome. Mm-mm. It's very good. Very clever. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we got a budget of $1.3 million. I think sometimes reporting on older films' budgets is not super reliable. So if I'm wrong, don't at me. And I have no box office information for you. There's none. None on Wikipedia or Box Office Mojo. And that is the extent of the research that I did. But um, the apparently, and BJ, we, you had mentioned this before we like actually logged on, it flopped, but the only successful major market during its theatrical release was in Minip- Minipeg, Winnipeg, oh Manitoba, Canada, where it opened on 
Boxing Day, 1974. When's Boxing Day, Joe? Boxing Day is December 26th. Really? Okay. And played continuously in local cinemas over four months and over one year non-continuously until 1976. Yes, and it was mostly supported by the same core group of, like, 9 to 14-year-olds who would sneak out of their house, not tell their parents where they were going, and then they would go and see this film not once, sometimes not even twice, sometimes all day on the weekend. Okay, but you mentioned not telling the parents where they're going, so I thought Mm -hmm. this movie was rated R. Oh, yeah. It's PG. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, if you think about it, the violence isn't that bad. There's cocaine in this movie! Oh, They were a lot more lax about drug use. It wasn't until (laughs) we got, like, Reagan in that suddenly you couldn't do anything. And we was like, "Mm, let's, like, maybe go back to the Hays Code. Let's see what happens. It's, well, because Rocky Horror came out one or two years after this and that is rated R. And maybe it's because there's simulated sex in it, I guess. Yeah, the sexuality. Yeah, it's the sex. Because you guys are prudes in the South. Yeah, no, I mean, we totally are. Sorry, by South, I mean the U.S. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly true. frustrating. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, this movie, well, here's the way. Okay, so Rotten Tomatoes are getting 91% based on 22 reviews, but most of those are, like, within the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this movie did, like, like it was a critical failure when it came out in 74, correct? Oh, it was a bomb in all regards. Yeah, nobody understood it. That's, yeah, I mean, that, that, again, well, I guess maybe, well, whatever, we're not talking about Rocky Horror. I'm just thinking, like, have, like, the reception of that versus the reception of this, and, like, they're, like, one or two years apart. It's just fascinating to me. But that was also a flop. I, yeah, it, it was also a flop, but Rocky Horror stayed alive, and I think that a lot of it was because of the sexual elements, because mm. queer community was just so desperate for anything that resonated with us, and Phantom of the Paradise doesn't have quite as much sex. I mean, no. one of Swan's Swan's first line when you actually see what he looks like mm. is dropping the F slur. So. Yeah. Oh boy, yeah. does that land badly. I definitely, I definitely wrote that in my notes. Uh, Rotten Tomato audience score, though, 84% based on 10,000 reviews. So, I mean, people are flocking to Rotten Tomatoes. Metacritic doesn't really matter. It's like 67 out of 100 for critics and 84 out of 100 for audiences, but the audience score is like five people. So, I'm not going to go down the crew, because I figure we'll talk about them as it as we discuss the film. So, Joe, I feel like this is going to be one that not a lot of our listeners, maybe, and maybe I'm generalizing, have seen yet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what's it about? <laughs> Don't worry, my plot synopsis is very long, because there was just a lot of things that I wanted There's to cover. There's so many things so many that things. happen in the first <laughs> half of the movie. <laughs> yeah, so, as always... Feel free to interject as I go into audio commentary mode. After an opening narration about record producer Swan, Paul Williams' ascent to power and his plans to open an illustrious rock palace called the Paradise, the film opens as amateur songwriter Winslow Leach, William Finley, performs a song from his cantata, Faust. It's important that people know that Faust is basically just about a deal with the devil, mm-hmm. a person who signs his life away so that he can get what he wants. You might say that's intentional. <gasps> it's like when the kids learn something in English class in like a 90s teen horror film, and then they're like, <laughs> oh, wait, that paid off later. And you're like, yeah, it's called screenwriting. <laughs> and I will say that you did definitely gloss over that the opening is not of him performing Faust. It's actually the Juicy Fruits uh, doing a wonderful, like, 
beach doo-wop song about a artist committing suicide that's the opening number of phantom of the paradise wait is that the juicy fruits or is that the the first band because i thought the juicy fruits it's was the, the same band it's the same band it's yeah that's the same like band, but they all they have three different names well, yes they evolve with they evolve, <laughs> they evolve with, <laughs> with with what swan wants for yeah. his image he's just he's continually rebranding them i will say so because joe and i talked about this before but my thing with i'm not a big like I love musicals. I'm not great with music, especially in first time listens, because I'm t- I tend to listen to the beat or the melody at first, and the not lyrics. the lyrics. Not the lyrics, exactly. Oh my god, who are you, Philbin? The lyrics well, don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it takes me a couple listens to like actually like learn the lyrics because I'm so focused on is this catchy? Am I liking it? So you can imagine that the Jessica Harper songs in this movie weren't my favorites because they weren't catchy. Sacrilege. I know. I know. But now I want to watch that fucking number. I, the juice, I love the Juicy Fruit. Yeah, that's that opening song, which, I mean, I'll probably come back to later when we just talk about the music in general. Right. Um, because Paul Williams wrote uh, the music for Happy Days, the stage musical, and it is it all sounds like the songs he wrote for the Juicy Fruits for this movie. Um, but yeah, that funny. song is about a rock singer committing suicide knowing that it'll make his music become more popular. <laughs> um and make more money so then his sister can afford to have some sort of operation which i also think that music is like that lyricism is just as important to the storyline as the fact that Winslow Leach's music is based on Faust because there's definitely elements of musicians become more popular after they die even if they weren't that famous or that good I wonder too if it's something like uh, if this was like made today, they probably incorporate something like the Twenty Seven Club into oh, it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Wait, what is that? Explain. Explain. Are you asking that so we can teach the listeners, or do you really not know? Uh, a little from column A, little from column B. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, it's just this like urban legend or myth that like um, uh, if you're a famous musician, you're going to die when you're twenty seven. Um, oh, right. Yes. Okay. It happened to Amy Winehouse. It happened to I want to say Jimmy Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Janis Joplin. Yeah. And it's also a really ugly clothing line from the bass player from Good Charlotte. So. Oh, that's not good for. Yeah, like it's called like level 27 or something like that. It was really big when I was in junior high. So that's how I first learned about the 27 club. I was like, oh, this is in bad taste and your clothes are bad. So I don't feel bad (laughs) about not buying this. And your music's bad. Sorry to anyone who likes Good Charlotte, but boo. I don't know if you have any 12 year olds from 2002 that listen to your podcast. So I think you're fine. Time travelers on the podcast? Anybody? No. I'm, I'm sure we have people that did listen to them in 2002. This is for sure. Yeah, if you're still a fan of Good Charlotte in the year of our Lord 2019. You have bad taste. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations on your purchase of the 27 there. I was more of a Green Day person. That's acceptable. That is acceptable. They've gone on to make musicals. They sure have. All right. So Swan hears uh, Winslow Leach's music and he decides that he desperately needs to have it to open the paradise. So he uses his hired goon, Arnold Philbin, played by George Mamoli, and he steals Faust and then blacklists Winslow from Death Records offices. Winslow sneaks into the auditions for backup singers, where he meets aspiring singer Phoenix, Jessica Harper, in her screen debut. Oh, this is her first thing? Mm-hmm, because they introduce her at the end. I didn't know this, because I, I only knew Jessica Harper from, from, from Suspiria. I've never seen Shock Treatment. I didn't know that she 
plays the Janet role in Shock Treatment. She's a delight in Shock Treatment. Really? I've seen her. Yes. Uh. Shock Treatment is an acquired taste. Um, <laughs> it's not great, but she is so adorable and just wonderful in it and brings this level of charm to Janet that is just so addictive i love her so much in it i think she's actually my favorite performance in shock treatment and that's me putting her above richard o'brien and that's a big thing for me right because um, that's a big movie for him right or yes is it just because he directed it too it's no it's very much like this was richard o'brien trying to be like i got no attention from rocky horror even though i'm behind all of it so it's my turn now like right. this is his rose's turn um <laughs> but jessica harper's so good in it She's so good. She's just super adorable. She really is. There's something about Jessica Harper, honestly, in everything, including Suspiria, mm -hmm. where she brings this wonderment to everything that she's doing. Like, her curiosity doesn't look inquisitive. It looks like wondering. And mm -hmm. I just can't, I can't not stare at her because she's, I, I get transfixed by her. I would agree with that. Well, and she, she has, has the best hair. hair of any of the women, <laughs> <laughs> yes. especially in this movie. When you have that audition scene, I'm like, what fucking wig did they give you for this? Fire them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that's why she wears a cowboy hat in a bunch of scenes too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and because she's so country, which is why Trace doesn't like her music. <laughs> Okay, so he meets aspiring singer Phoenix, and he is quickly thrown out of the auditions, and then he is beaten up and framed by crooked cops. You get some smack, Jack. Yeah. He is then sent to Swan-sponsored Sing Sing, where all of his teeth are pulled out and replaced by metal ones. For medical... They medical it's, advancement? It's to prevent infection? Against what? So Scurvy? this kind of makes sense, because frequently if people do have very infected molars they'll replace them with like silver teeth or like silver cap teeth sure. so i guess this was using prisoners to prove look how much this works by replacing all of their teeth which is super illegal and mm -hmm. <laughs> unethical on a lot of levels but at least the idea behind it kind of tracks it's just very inhumane Mm -hmm. Well, it's preventative, so it was probably covered by insurance. Just using prisoners as human guinea pigs, you know. <laughs> America. There's, there's no basis in truth to any of this. This is fiction. <laughs> it's a film. Come on, people. So, yeah. And then I think I thought we were going like, to get subjected to, you know, quite a lengthy prison sequence. And it's You're like, expecting, oh, what, a clockwork orange? Kind of. But, like, <laughs> maybe six months later, and he escapes immediately. Yes, I love that he just dives into an empty box in a conveyor <laughs> and then gets dropped out of a truck back in New York. <laughs> it's something. It it's is amazing. some like children's like holiday robbery gone amuck movie of like jumping out of a Christmas present. Like that's what's happening. It, there's also yes. some like silent movie type speeding up of the film. I think when yes. he jumps in the box, it's very yes. Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> oh well, here's the thing. I feel. I haven't admittedly watched a ton of De Palma films, but it's kind of amazing, A, that he made this movie immediately after making Sisters with Margot Kidder, which is mm -hmm. like a totally fucked up psychological thriller about identical twins. Mm -hmm. And then he makes this movie, which B, feels like him just having the most fun that he could have throwing every camera trick he can possibly think of on screen. Well, De Palma as a filmmaker is very much 
kind of the homage guy. Like he does what Quentin Tarantino does now, but before that existed. I thought you were going to say better. I will, I, <laughs> it's, it's subjective. It's subjective. It's subjective. Um, I think that Tarantino's are a little bit more seamless. Like De Palmo's are very like, and now's the split diopter shot. And now yeah. we're speeding it up. And it's like, really jarring yes. um, at times i was surprised that it took him so long to do a split screen in this movie like when it finally showed up and then it wasn't even like a split screen it was like a two-thirds one-third split screen and i was like oh my god look at him breaking the mold oh but it's like an entire song's worth of split yeah. screen <laughs> that's true and don't forget that the entire film is kind of presented as split screens but using things like mirrors and mm-hmm. framing so oh, yes. I did, he's, I did not he's really that. building up to it Okay. It's like he's he's edging, and then he gets to the song but, by. <laughs> but I, I get what you're saying, though. It's like because like, I feel like whenever, not to say that Quentin Tarantino isn't showy, but I do feel like when Brian De Palma is doing things, it's very much like not grinding the movie to a halt to be like, "Look at this!" But it's there's a lot of "Look at this!" when he does. Oh something. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of nudge and wink. Like, hey, do you get that? Do you get that Hitchcock reference? Hey. Did you get that Touch of Evil reference? Oh, God, the Touch of Evil reference. <laughs> Which really works for me with his style. Because it. it's just, it's so fun. Because it's like, oh, yeah, you are enjoying every second of this process. Oh, yeah. yeah. 100%. And, and also, like, you're making this movie for you, and you don't give a single fuck what anyone else thinks. No. Until it flops, and then you never talk about it on I record know. ever again. Well, that's, yeah, I, I was trying to think of, like, low-tier De Palma, and I feel like it's his more recent stuff. Like, I, I didn't see the one with Rachel McAdams and Numi Rapace. Uh, the whatever. lesbian ones that yeah, the, I had a blast listening to Gaylords of Darkness talk about. I heard it was really bad, but I did see the Black Dahlia, and I was very disappointed mm. with that. But, yeah, I feel like his recent stuff hasn't been, the, I, maybe, again, it's just, like, age, like, with Cronenberg, too, and, you know, mm-hmm. studio system, whatever. Carpenter, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Studios, love them. <laughs> not saying that they beat the creativity and the originality and all the talent out of directors but holy shit yeah. <laughs> okay so we're like 10 minutes into this movie i'm gonna keep going okay, okay. yeah we really are <laughs> no it's fine this is literally what we do i love it okay so when winslow hears that the okay so you were right the first band is the juicy fruits the second band is called the beach bums yes the the doo-wop group there we go yeah so they have traded oh, the, the surfer to, i'm sorry sir, doo-wop's the first one surfer doo-wop the first and surfer then, music there we go yeah so 50s beach boy-esque so they are going to be debuting his songs at the paradise's opening and he busts out of jail. He storms the Death Records offices in a very hilarious shot that makes uh, <laughs> makes him look like he's about eight feet tall. <laughs> well, so interesting thing about that. All of the Death Records uh, buildings were built for the height of Paul Williams. Mm. So oh, that makes that's why sense. he looks like such a giant because William Finley is much taller than Paul Williams, as are most humans on this planet. Yes, um, listeners, if for some reason you didn't watch the movie or you haven't seen this and you're still listening shame to us, shame on you. Yeah, basically the villain in this movie, Paul Williams, is an elf, but like slightly <laughs> taller, more or less, hyper talented singer songwriter, but also the height of a young child. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Like, okay. He wrote mu- music for the Muppets, maybe because he's an actual Muppet. <laughs> and, then, and then fit right in. Yep. <laughs> he and Kermit, best friends forever. Yep. So yeah, all of those doorways are meant for his height, which is why when he stands in them, he fits perfectly, but everyone else has to duck like they're going into a child's clubhouse. 
I'm so glad you told me that because honestly, when I was watching this, I was like, that's a really weird creative choice because it felt very much like Willy Wonka, like Oompa Loompa Land. Very much. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of what it is. Yep, (laughs) it really is. I was getting being John Malkovich, but I like yours better. Oh, I like that too, actually. But anyway, continue. Okay, so he storms the death record offices and winds up losing half of his face in a record press accident, which in real life actually almost kind of happened (laughs) and it's his own record it's his music yes it's so poetic it's so on the nose and it's so great i mean if you gotta go out one way you might as well let your art kill you (laughs) yes (laughs) isn't that basically what's happening to all of us right now (laughs) yeah i feel like there's some like quote by someone some vonnegut quote maybe i don't know i feel like he'd say some shit like that do they explain how the record press burning his face also kills his voice? Or is it just like a thing we're supposed to accept? I, th- I think it's implied yeah. like maybe it's also the neck. I, I suspend my disbelief. It's a fucking musical. <laughs> he got a gentle caress and like a hiss and that was enough. Yeah. Duly noted. Makes sense. <laughs> just stay away from record press kids. They're they're dangerous. <laughs> Okay, so stumbling to the paradise, he styles himself in a full leather outfit and Jesus fucking Christ trace as we wrap up eight weeks of camp. Oh, fuck me in the face. Another leather (laughs) outfit. Sorry. Read for uh, the books. Everyone, it is our eighth and final week of our camp marathon, Phantom of the Paradise. There you go. Yeah, (laughs) nicely done. I like it. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) you had 40 minutes. I know, I know, I know. It's fine. Okay, so he styles himself in leather and a silver falcon mask and proceeds to kill the beach bums with a bomb during their rehearsal. This is the touch of evil homage, right? Yes. Okay. If you have not seen A Touch of Evil Kids, it's a great Orson Welles film, but it's mostly (laughs) known for a split sequence with a bomb. Mm -hmm. And if you you went to film school, there's a 99% chance that you were forced to watch this movie. Yes. 100%. Yes. <laughs> There's a 99% chance that you are 100% forced to watch it. <laughs> okay. Swan makes a deal with Winslow after they agree that Phoenix is the perfect fit. And after Swan restores his voice, Winslow signs an extremely lengthy and overly elaborate contract to rewrite the cantata in a week. I guffawed. At the size of this contract. So good. And I love the fact that they're just like, the, the paradise is opening in a week, and we need you to rewrite this whole thing, and just, you know, sign in blood. Here. It's also really, I mean, okay, again, I get it. Musical, don't need, like, motivation, whatever. That he's so trusting of Swan right away, to the point where he doesn't read the contract at all before signing it. He just really wants his music to be made. And he really wants Phoenix to be the one to sing it. It Honestly, it made me think of one of my other favorite camp movies of all time, Josie and the Pussycats. <gasps> yeah, Where <laughs> Wyatt is like, do you want to sign this contract? And they have that moment of like, isn't it weird? You've never even heard us play. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Do you not want a record deal? And they're like, oh, just kidding. We'll all sign. <laughs> that movie... Uh, it's not a, it's not a podcast about that movie, but oh my god, it's so You can listen good. to me talk about it on my other podcast cuz I already did that shit. I mean, you're talking to somebody who owns screen-worn like pussycat headphones. Uh, <gasps> yes. Yes. It was a gift from me and I cried like you would have thought that somebody had gifted me like the the most fancy technological advancement. Nope, I got 
shitty cat headphones and cried. <laughs> Does it come with Josie the Mr. and the Pussycats are the best band in the world. <laughs> Fiona is hella cool. <laughs> I'm going to watch that tonight, maybe. It's so good. It's like a a palate cleanser for your soul. If you're ever having a bad day, just watch Josie. I quote Tara Reid in that movie all the time when I'm at work. When I'm working at the bar, I'll just walk up to people and go, Coasters. You have no idea what I'm doing when I say this to you. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. She is genuinely good in that movie. She really is. She's so good. If I could go back in time, I'd want to meet Snoopy. Hey, Trace, know who else is really good in that movie? Nurse who? Rosario Dawson. Yes! <laughs> uh, she really is. Please visit our Patreon where we refer to Rosario Dawson as Nurse Rosario Dawson uh, for a good <laughs> chunk of the Zombieland Double Tap podcast. This is true. Yeah. Uh, okay, so back to this movie, which is about extremely lengthy and overly elaborate contracts. <laughs> which I I also feel like everything about this movie obviously is making fun of Phantom of the Opera, but oh, I do for sure. But I also well, love how it's basically saying the Phantom is also kind of stupid. Well, yes, <laughs> it's because it's it's more so because the musical was in the eighties. So this is more so like, is it doing like the book? No, it's the movie. No, because it's the, the movie. Yeah, because the movie he gets like acid on his face. But the book he's like born with a deformity. But is it making fun of it or is it like playfully homaging it? I think both. Okay. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely built on the premise that you know about the Phantom of the Opera. But I mm-hmm. think it's also reinforcing like, isn't it a bit silly that this ghost is just kind of hanging around, causing mayhem? And- well. I also think that with like it, with any iteration of Phantom, because you know Christine's supposed to have this amazing, amazing voice, and or any movie that has some like a, a plot thing like that, where it's like, oh, this person is so talented, and like blah blah blah. And I'm not dissing Jessica Harper; I think she's great. She's very lovely, but oh, it's shit. here we go. No, I'm just saying it's like one of those. Like, I mean, her voice isn't like amazing. She can sing, but it's not like this. I hard disagree with you, but we'll get to that when we talk ah! about music. Okay. I can't believe you are trashing. National treasure, Jessica Harper. I am not <laughs> listening of the podcast. You know, she subscribes to Patreon and now she's just going to like bail on us. It's really disappointing. For a split second, I believed you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Anyway, okay, so go. Okay. Uh, so Swan obviously quickly goes behind Winslow's back and he hires Beef, Garrett Graham, and the single fucking best part about this goddamn movie <laughs> i agree all of his lines i mean i'm sure people go dress up as him for halloween but like oh they do i want to be him for halloween so bad i want to be him on other days that are not halloween i just want and the best part too is that beef has this like screamy rock voice and then the because it's not garrett graham and then when he talks he uses the single most flamboyant voice he could possibly use and it is just mm, chef's kiss i'm not doing it in drug this line's written for a chick like what (laughs) garrett graham what are you doing but keep doing it it's very disappointing to me that like I, I want to hear more from him. Like, I know that he goes to the convention in Winnipeg, which is a thing that if you're a big fan of this film, they've already put on two and they'll probably put on a few more. But uh, yeah, I really want to hear more about his process for developing this voice and this character. 
So I have talked to Garrett Graham about this because Garrett Graham is a frequent visitor to Cinema Wasteland in Strongsville, Ohio, um, which is sort (laughs) of a convention that celebrates um, drive-in camp. Like we did a... uh, I love a everything sor- you're talking about. A sorority babes at the slime ball bolorama like <laughs> cast reunion. Like that's the kind <laughs> nice. of convention it is. It's great. Yes. And every time Garrett Graham comes in town, I always talk to him about um, being this the openly swinging parents in front of their children in television. Um, and then beef. And I asked him, I was like, so this voice, this everything. And he's like, I wanted to be the epitome, the amalgamation of every glam rock superstar from the seventies. And that's what they all kind of became. Like that's Mm -hmm. who they are. They, he's like, but I didn't want it to be ambiguous. Like I was going to lean as hard into the femininity as possible while still being sort of this sex symbol that women wanted, even though he's, clearly super gay yes. <laughs> that one outfit where it's like the diamond on his bulge i <laughs> loved that so much i may have gotten a boner at 9 30 on morning. <laughs> well oh his God. introduction behind your diamond trace come on his introduction even looks like a goddamn entrance to rupaul's drag race yeah. like he doesn't enter he is revealed <laughs> not gonna lie so this scene where where we're introduced to beef it happens on an airport uh (laughs) like a hangar a hangar which is just a random press conference populated (gasps) by nobodies and journalists and 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 there's the the the, the fucking logo on the podium is like cgi'd yes (laughs) yes it is it looks like it was used with ms paint yes it's and it, it like moves as the camera shakes a little bit and you're like oh Oh God! Like, I, like, and, th- and there's a story there. I know we'll go into it later, but like, it's just like, oh my God! It's so ridiculous. I just love it though. So he's in this coffin. They open up the door, and he comes out. He looks kind of Frankenstein esque, and all I could think of was, oh yeah, somebody's you know auditioning for Dracula, you know, season five. Oh yeah, but <laughs> well, he he's does like covered he, in glitter. Like, he's covered in glitter. He has silver lipstick on. He has his trademark ever changing symbols that are always on his face, and they change depending on the outfit, which I very much enjoy that touch. Hashtag but goals, he, yeah. But he bride of Frankenstein's because he doesn't speak. He hisses. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> Perfect. Oh my god. Okay, so this is beef. This is the beef who will be opening the paradise in uh in Phoenix's stead. So, Swan also steals the last of Winslow's music, and then he seals him up behind a wall of bricks Dude, in advance of opening night. He cask of Amontillados him. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? I. <laughs> it's perfection, Trace. Uh, um, and if you went to high school and you took freshman English, I'm assuming you read the short story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Cask of Amontillado. If not, go Google it. The sheer number of references that we've dropped in what, like the 50 minutes now? <laughs> right. Like this film is so erudite considering that it's basically just a camp test. Like I, I can't even reconcile the two parts of my brain that try to put this film together. Well, this is also the point. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Okay. So, um, so Beef copes with his concerns about stealing a dead man's music because everyone still thinks that Winslow is dead and not hiding out behind a brick wall writing music. So he copes with this by doing copious amounts of cocaine. Yep. 
he does this. No, he has like a lot of cocaine, but then I, I, I feel like he like just tosses the bag and I'm like, that's just a waste of cocaine at that point. Like he, he puts some on his little tray thing and like sniffs it, but then he like discards the extra. I was so perplexed. Trace. It's the seventies. In this economy? Okay, yeah. yes, in this economy. <laughs> you can't just throw away your cocaine. I mean, he's a major rock star. He could probably just snap his fingers and get a couple groupies to bring him some yeah, new stuff. The man is wearing time. antlers as a belt. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> I, I, I actually have antler penis in all caps on my notes. Again, fashion goals. Okay, so at this point, this is when he gets threatened uh, in a psycho-informed attack sequence while he is in the shower. And of course, the Phantom wields a toilet plunger, as one does. It's so funny, though, that he would homage Psycho here, but then also do it, like, what, ten years later in Dress to Kill? But the difference is, is that Dress to Kill is serious. Well, yeah. maybe. <laughs> you could also make the argument it is very not serious. I'd say maybe the, the homage in Dress to Kill is a bit more serious. Yes. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Maybe not the film itself. Okay. Uh, so wearing a Santa cloak, Beef attempts to sneak away down the fire <laughs> I'm escape. I'm so glad you included that detail. <laughs> it's so important. Anyway. Uh, but Philbin lures him back with yet more coke. So there you go, Trace. He didn't. He didn't need to worry about it. It just made me really sad to see that bag just get tossed away, but whatever. Aww. So the Paradise's opening night begins with a rousing Grand Gunal-themed Cabinet of Dr. Caligari informed performance by the Undeads, which is the third iteration of the our little boy band. of our, our little boy band. And another film that if you've been to film school, you've probably seen, you were probably made to watch the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This mm-hmm. is like... There's a trend here. There's a trend with the movies he's picking to homage. It's basically De Palma saying like, hey kids, get a fucking film education. <laughs> but is it that or is it him being like, hey kids, all your sacred cows are camp trash? Yeah. Like, because I <laughs> think that's true. more of what it is. <laughs> oh, you think German expressionism is, is impressive? Like, here, I'm just going to trot this out and we're going to have these hack artists rip away fake arms and toss them out into a crowd of adoring people. Yeah. Okay, so the undeads open the stage. And I also wanted to highlight, do you think that there is a Rocky Horror reference in here or a precursor? Because one of those women in the back who is sewing up beef kind of looks a bit like, is it Magenta? I think it's Magenta, yeah. That's that's yeah. the that's the red-headed fro, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, wow, that is very strikingly similar. <laughs> I'm not sure if that would be an homage because I know that Patricia Quinn's hair, like, that's her actual hair. So when she did it on the stage, that just was her hair. So <laughs> I don't know. Part of me wants it to be an inspiration, but the other part of me wants it just to be a coincidence of fuck it hair. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> fuck it this hair. is the hair that I have, and this is what we were able to do with it the day of shooting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so at this point, Beef takes the stage in a crop top, spandex shorts, and chunky heels. I say it again, folks. Fashion fucking goals. This is the, this is the bulge <laughs> diamond, too. Yeah. It's a good look for him. It is very good. It's supposed to be, like, patchwork, because he's like a Frankenstein, mm-hmm. but fashion. Frankenstein, <laughs> but make it fashion. <laughs> <laughs> so an angry phantom electrocutes him for disregarding his warning. 
live on stage in front of adoring fans. With mm-hmm. with a neon lightning bolt sign, like Zeus from the heavens, just and he Yeah. And that, it, it's not plugged into anything, but no. it still manages no. to electrocute him. <laughs> He smites him. <laughs> no, and like because he tosses it, it's like you know he's like striking him down. But it's like the way it falls; it's a very weirdly shot fall, and it, it hits him perfectly, and it kills him immediately. So it's great. Yeah, it's amazing. And his death face—it's an it orgasm is, face. Yeah, it's an it o is face. something. <laughs> it's like a side-mouthed O face is the best way I can describe it. So naturally, the crowd assumes that this is part of the show, and they go ape shit for it, which means that they now need to do something to appease the crowd, so Philbin sends Phoenix out on stage, and she becomes an immediate sensation. Okay, no, I, I'm glad. I am glad that you tweeted about this because I said the like out of I was pretty quiet watching this movie the first time, and the one thing that I said was what there is no <laughs> way. It is a jarring disconnect between what Beef and the Undeads were delivering and then what Phoenix delivers in her debut performance. I just don't buy that these people would be gung-ho about whatever she's singing after what they came here. It's like if you go see like a, a, a Kiss concert and then like Adele comes out. Or Janis Joplin. Or that. I would actually be very okay with it. Do you want to know what opened for Kiss on their t- latest tour? A speed painter. That's a real thing. <laughs> okay, I went to Kiss and a speed painter opened. I was like, what is this bullshit? All right, I'm in. It's fine. It was really cool, but I was like, this is a choice to have him open for Kiss, but okay. Do you think that's like, oh, the opening act all ate really bad seafood at the all-you-can-eat <laughs> buffet, and we needed to get someone in here stat, like Drop Dead Gorgeous style? Part of me thinks, uh, also I love that movie. It's my right. favorite co- comedic movie ever made. Oh. Um, I think that it's just that Kiss, it, like, I would never want to open for Kiss because you're no. going to suck in comparison because yes. not that Kiss is a good band because they're not. No. Like, my girlfriend describes Kiss the best way possible. Kiss is the hibachi grill of musicians. <laughs> like, you are not here. Like, all of all hibachi grills, they all taste the fucking same, but you go for that show. Like, you want to watch the mess. That, but, okay, I, I, I get that this person is not in the same league as Kiss, but that's what I say about Britney Spears. Because every time I say I, I want to go see Britney Spears in concert, they're like, but she doesn't sing. And I'm like, you don't go to hear her sing. You go to see her perform. And Correct. she performs. And you know what? I watched Paul Stanley, a man in his 70s, fly above an audience on a, <laughs> like, I don't even know, a rope? Like a single thing fly to another stage to sing a song written about his dick like he's the (laughs) coolest man alive but yes so i think that the jarring (laughs) shift from like the beef kiss show to jessica harper is very jarring but i think it's important because i believe that the audience would still be into this because the audience didn't come there for beef or for the undeads they came for the paradise they came for the paradise and they came for whatever swan has decided is cool because mm. the juicy fruits band has changed three times already and all of the fans have not left because it doesn't matter what kind of music they're making as long as swan says that it's good they're gonna believe that it's good oh my god you guys swan is the original fiona from josie and the thank Pussycats. you it's josie and the, it's everything comes back to josie and the pussycats <laughs> It's that is one hundred percent what it is. Theater programmers, wherever you are, double feature double for the Paradise and Josie and the Pussycats. That is my dream. Oh my god! No, because the cliche double feature would be this and Rocky Horror. No, yeah. you do this no. and Josie and the Pussycats. It's too much of the same. What is the meme where it's like woke versus 
us like sleep woke or whatever i don't know <laughs> the sleep one is phantom and rocky horror the woke one is phantom and joe's and the pussycats yeah swan is the coolest you should buy all <laughs> of his music it's the distracted boyfriend and it's like he like he's rocky horror or like he's the viewer holding rocky horror's hand but he's looking back at family yep Ooh. yep 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 Wow, these are timely meme takes. <laughs> this is going to age great. We are describing them orally. They are visual. This is great entertainment. Okay, so uh, Swan swoops in and he signs her to an exclusive contract because this film is, it's got more fucking contracts in it than Fifty Shades of Grey. My God. Not not a reverence I expected in this episode. Hey, you know what? They have as many consent issues in this movie too, so. They do. This is true. <laughs> I am uncomfortable with the sex in this film. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Mostly because I don't think of Paul Williams in a sexual way because I feel like I would trip on him trying to find his dick. Because he's a human Muppet and I don't want to think about Kermit (laughs) fucking either. Well, it's really, but there's also like that, that, uh, I guess I don't even want to call it like lesbian, but like the, the circle bed of female orgy that happens in the beginning when he first sneaks into the uh, death records. Oh, the... He's auditioning us right now. Like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. girl, <laughs> um, why? But I have to say that I am, I feel robbed that we did not get some kind of song out of those women because I was fully expecting some sexy, like, orgy musical number to come out of it. Like a chorus of harpies? Kind of. <laughs> well, we heard them all sing during the audition, and I'm glad we didn't get that. I also heard them scream. Ah, sexual assault. So fun. Okay. Moving on. Later that night, on the roof, the Phantom tries to reason with Phoenix, but he comes on just a touch strong, and she flips the fuck out and runs away, because he's kind of terrifying in a bird mask. Although his eye acting, because when it started, I was like, his eyes are enormous, but then I realized why they're so enormous, because his eye acting when he's in that mask is phenomenal. Oh, it's wonderful. I was almost surprised that they didn't just like body double Finley out because really he only plays himself in a couple of scenes and then he has to act under all of the leather and falcon head masks. But thing. that's why, because they needed someone with enormous eyes. He, yes. it's The eye in the mask is so just stunning because a lot of times those sorts of masks like eat your face a little Mm -hmm, bit mm -hmm. but you know exactly what he's feeling and then because he's got those silver teeth and he has a pretty wide mouth yes the mouth acting is also really uh it's really good he's very express like expressive Mm -hmm. so uh the phantom spies on phoenix having sex with swan <clears throat> Sorry, threw up a little bit. I think they just finished having sex. No, I think they were about to have sex because she definitely like takes his nipple out, and it's very uncomfortable. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will confess that I I kind of gleefully laughed when she's like trying to put the moves on him, and he just rolls over and turns on the TV so that he can watch another man watch him and get really disturbed and angry and he's like yeah fuck yeah that's my fetish (laughs) exactly and before that even happens like the positioning that they have he's laying with his arms straight out as if he's being crucified (laughs) and she's curled up onto him and he doesn't move he just lays there and she's like i'm trying i'm trying to maybe this nipple play will do something nope you're not moving okay (laughs) i mean read the body language you, you don't always have to have sex because sometimes both parties are not into it. He's just not a sexual being. He's like this, you know, this Oompa Loompa Elton John hybrid. So actually, I do have a funny, 
a funny anecdote. So in the documentary, which I realize I've not mentioned. So there's a documentary called The Phantom of Winnipeg, which is all about how the Winnipeggers or Peggers. <laughs> oh, it's wow. actually what they call themselves. So do with that as you Do know. they know? They must. They have to know. Yeah. So the the documentary is absolutely delightful. It hasn't been released as of the time of this recording, but I believe it's probably going to do some festival rounds. It's really great. The people in it are just absolute gem human beings. They're so in love with this movie. It's really, like, it's really inspiring. Did the documentary make you appreciate the film more? It did. It didn't hurt seeing the film and then the very next day watching the documentary as well, because it was like... You watch this movie and it's so kooky and campy and just unusual. And then you see these people talking about how it literally shaped their lives. Like people, these people are such hardcore fans. Like this is their vice. These people have like dens and like tattoos and like paraphernalia. BJ's like, hold my beer. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like that with Fright Night. But I, <laughs> the Phantom is my, is my next tattoo. And I've been going back and forth of whether or not I want the mask or if I want the bird but i'm afraid that the bird will like blend weird as i get older mm. since it's all just dot treatment so mm. i've been going back and forth i can tell you that the bird was the most popular tattoo that the peggers had which makes complete sense to me i just love winnipeg in general because chris jericho's from winnipeg so it's perfect in my book yeah. so my anecdote was that apparently the the transcendence of this movie actually extended also to the actor so when paul williams went on tour for his music he apparently became such a sex symbol that they sold out the concert three days in a row. And it, like, he was only meant to be there for one day and they had to extend his stay multiple days. And like women were beetles level fawning over him, like passing out, having to be carried out much, especially because Swan looks and dresses like my grandmother in 1974. I was just saying like, can you imagine riding that cock? Like, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, don't. I can't. It could be a tripod. It could be as big as him. Uh, I. You know what? I believe that this could be a Toulouse Lautrec situation here, folks. That was my Brian De Palma esque. Like, hey, if you don't know what that is, go and look <laughs> it up, kids. He's a famous <laughs> painter from Moulin Rouge. Okay, I didn't know what that meant. This podcast is nothing if not educational and also deeply misguided. I mean, this has been film one hundred and one today. So. It really has, hasn't it? I think more so than ever before. <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's fine. Because again, I think a lot of people won't have seen this movie already. So I hope they go out and seek it out. and they, Or they just listen to it and learn shit. I yeah. think it's on Shudder right now. It, yes, it is. Um, but it was weird though. because when I, So I thought it was going to be on Amazon. And it was like, oh, it's on Amazon through Shudder. So I was like, cool, I have a Shudder account. I went to Shudder, like the website. And, it and then you couldn't find it? Could not find it. I had the same problem. I mean, I own it, but I was definitely that person that's like, oh, but I don't want to move five feet to yeah. get the physical copy. <laughs> so I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, went to Amazon. I was like, oh, shit, Shutter. Well, Why is that? Can't find it now. But here's the thing, though. So you can subscribe to Shutter through Amazon and just watch, like, Amazon Prime and, like, put Shutter movies on there. It's there that way. So it's on Am- Shutter through Amazon, but it's not on Shutter. Regular Shutter. Yeah, it's very strange. It doesn't make any sense. Quite odd. Shutter. So- I'm going to tweet at them later. Continue. (laughs) We're almost done with the movie. Yes, we're almost there. (laughs) Okay, so the Phantom attempts to kill himself, but he discovers that he can only die if Swan is killed. And of course, Swan is also under contract. 
Dun, dun, dun. So at this point, we're heading into the climax. News comes out that Swan and Phoenix will marry on stage, and the Phantom discovers that Swan looks almost exactly the same as he did 20 years earlier, because the media mogul signed a contract with the devil just before attempting suicide when he was very young. Do you have to do another sidebar here? Babyface Paul Williams is like uncanny valley, and it really frightened me. I did not enjoy the bathtub sequence in this film at all. He looks way too smooth for any actual human being. He looks like a 12-year-old boy. And I was like, I am going to get flagged on a pedophilia list for watching this scene. And that's the thing is you're not wrong because that's always the thought that I have when I watch it. Like I'm sort of desensitized to it at this point, but I remember the first time seeing it because he, it's because his stature is so small that it looks childlike and it's very concerning. Yeah. Even having like a, a freaky devil version of him trying to seduce him through the mirror, it doesn't make it any less uncomfortable i find it's just it's a bizarre scene i mean i I obviously i get it but like it's just so weird like i didn't know it was possible to make the picture of dorian gray both gayer and more uncomfortable but they did it Mm -hmm. they figured it out can we also talk briefly about the like why would swan have a video camera set up in his own bathroom well and the camera keeps changing angles He's he's got multiple points of view, <laughs> and he edited it together into one film reel. <laughs> or maybe the devil did. I tried. I try to justify it in my head that like Swan is such a narcissist, which is also why. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it contributes to the picture of Dorian Gray ass. Like this will you know age while well, you don't or whatever bullshit. Yes, but he records everything. Like every moment of the paradise is under constant surveillance yeah and i think uh, again back to like the roof scene um it's less about him wanting to keep track of things and more about him wanting to see how other people are reacting to his existence that is peak narcissism like everything has to be about me up to Mm -hmm. and including the facial reactions of other people when i'm doing stuff exactly god okay so Uh, this is also when we learn that Swan plans to assassinate Phoenix live on television after he marries her, because it makes for good entertainment. I was going to say, that's the only reason, right? Like, there's no other reason for that. Yeah, and and that is Romeo and Juliet style, like, explained to us through the Juicy Fruit song at the very beginning of the best thing for business is killing musicians because people will buy their shit. Yeah. Oh Which you God. think he he also has already demonstrated by being like, oh yeah, when I watched the Beach Bums go up in flames during that dress rehearsal, it was immensely entertaining. Yeah. The Beach Bums are du jour. <laughs> God! <laughs> this is amazing. Question. Did you think that the Beach Bums participated in any backdoor lover? Yes. That didn't take long. No. <laughs> you, you, again, w- watch the watch the opening number when they're singing. There's a lot of a lot of touching going on between those boys. Yeah, I think I need to rewatch this. Like, I mean, like, to be right, there's a lot on screen at all <laughs> yeah, times of really this movie. Is. Yep. Okay. So the Phantom starts a fire in the contract room as the party rages down below. Phoenix chicken dances onto the stage as the Phantom races through the halls to stop the assassin with the high-powered rifle. 
the things I have to read for this fucking podcast. I also realized we skipped over, though, one of her early dance auditions when she starts out, like, pretty great. And then she just starts, it's like she's trying to mop the air with her hair. And she's just, like, she's just galloping. Orangutanging around. (laughs) She's feeling herself. She's, like, loose, like, very, like, light-limbed, kind of like the wacky, waving, inflatable arm thing. (laughs) It's pretty great, and respect to her for that. Kudos to Jessica Harper. I feel like a lot of her stuff was just kind of, like, show up here and sing, and then improv a bit. So, Philbin is shot in Phoenix's place, and the Phantom swings down and rips off Swan's face, revealing a horribly disfigured visage underneath. The crab then joins the phantom in stabbing Swan to death, and as he dies, so too does the phantom, fulfilling their contract. With his dying breath, Phoenix finally recognizes him and rushes to his side as the party rages on. The end. The end. The end. We did it. That plot description took nearly as long as the actual movie itself, and I feel great about it we did gloss over the fact there are so many fucking bird references in this movie oh my god there's so many because his his name is swan mm-hmm. um the death records is a dead bird that's not a swan the phoenix, phoenix mm-hmm. is obviously a bird the phantom's mask is like this weird like owl thing yeah i realized yeah. i called it a falcon but i i was gonna correct to you but then i thought maybe i was wrong <laughs> No, I, I think like, it yeah, is meant to be an owl. It. Yeah, it looks similar. It, it reminds me a lot. There's like a, a subplot of like these owl-faced people in like one of the Batman comics. It looks a lot like that. Which I, to this day, think that they are paying an homage to Phantom of the Paradise. One of my friends has like the owl men tattoo. And I was like, oh shit, Phantom tattoo? And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> deeply disappointed. And see, this wouldn't be the first horror film to use an owl as its like main villain. We should double feature this with Stage Fright from the 80s. And just to clarify, not the other Stage no. Fright, which is also a rock musical. Not the bad one that we covered that I hate, but the good slasher that's not a musical, but is still set in a theater. Not the one with Meatloaf the Man. Yeah. True. Yeah. Exactly. Which we then got called out for on that episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel bad. I don't think that director actually listened to it. I think he read our article where we said we hated it, and he probably was like, I'm not going to listen to that. This is also, like, not a Stage Fright Apologist podcast, but I fucking love that movie, and that's because I definitely was a theater kid who went to theater camp. <laughs> so I was like, this hits all my buttons. <laughs> that was the part of it that we actually liked. It was just the, the later execution with all the other stuff. We also hated the lead girl. Yeah, she's super bored. I know, I listened to the episode and then I was like, mm. Yeah, you were fuming. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so where do y'all want to start? The one thing that I do want to say is, because I, I said that I would do it earlier, so I'm going to do it now. Okay. No, the idea that Jessica Harper is not... A strong singer. And oh, shit. Here we go. Most of us, when we think of like the Phantom type things, typically Phantom of the Opera, and right. we do think of the Christine Daae. Christine Daae is like a power soprano. Yeah. She is the highest of high notes. And for whatever reason, as like Western culture, we have put so much value in women who can sing high. Ah. And Jessica Harper does not sing high, but she can hit low notes that are like otherworldly to come out of a woman. And the fact that she can do so and from a background that is not soul or gospel, mm-hmm. because Amy Winehouse can also hit those low notes, but it's it's very soul and gospel. It right. sounds like a yes. hundred other singers. Jessica Harper hits those notes and they are wholly unique to herself. And it is stunning because we don't ever allow women to sound like that if they are gonna sound that low it has to be soul 
And the fact that it's not, I like as a kid, it like made my brain explode because I I am trained in both um, like classical vocal as a like power bottom alto, so like low 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 <laughs> notes. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also trained in, like, Broadway belt and, like, rock voice, which is, like, way higher, like, wailing, like, loud, loud, loud. But they don't write ballads for altos. Yeah. They just don't. So Old Souls was something that the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, my God. And I think that that's a reason I was so drawn to the film at such a young age because it was the first time I ever heard a ballad that I was like, oh, this is meant for someone who sings like me. And that doesn't happen ever. And I would tweet about it like once a month for years <laughs> of I have to go to an audition. Sure would love the the music for old souls. I would love that because hmm. the sheet music for like legit sheet music for this uh, for Probably this movie is hard. Yeah, it doesn't exist. But I got this random email from something that was like Swan Archives or like admin at oh Swan my God. Archives. Nice. And they sent me the fucking sheet music. So I have it. I have the sheet music for Old Souls in my audition book. And I also have another one that's like laminated and saved forever so that I don't <laughs> ruin it. But it is like one of my most like prized possessions. And it has like that cool like old world font on the top of it. And every time I bring it to an audition... People either have never heard of it and are like, this is an amazing song, and I've never heard a ballad for a voice that low, or they know what it is exactly, and they're like, where the fuck did you get this music? Right. (laughs) So, like, that to me, I think that we have an issue with equating high notes for good, and that's not true. Do you think that that applies to men as well? Because I, I mean, again, I'm not a great singer, but whenever I was doing, like, I, I would always look for songs that were very, very low, like bass heavy. And I always found that, at least in musicals, like, so many songs were baritone or tenor. Yes. So there's, the difference being is that when, speaking from, like, a purely musical theater standpoint, yeah. all of, like, the lead performances tend to be for tenor, similar to, like, how ingenues for women are sopranos. high sopranos. Yeah. Hmm. The difference, though, is that once you age out of that leading man age, there are countless roles that are bass, bare, like low gotcha. baritone that you can play for the rest of your life. Women, once you age out of ingenue, you have like side character alto, but there's no like good roles for you anymore. Like, congrats, you're a mom now. Fuck off. We don't want you. And it's it's so shitty. So yeah. the fact that that song exists, I am forever indebted to Paul Williams for it. And like Paul Williams writes really good music for low singing women because we've only just begun. Yeah, the Carpenters. It's like a low tone for a woman and it's gorgeous. So yeah, that's my rant about why Jessica Harper is actually a really good singer. No, I mean, <laughs> that's and fascinating. Again, I wasn't trying to say that she wasn't a good singer. It was just one of those things where it's like whenever that plot device thing, like, you know, it's, it's this one voice that blows away everyone, like blows everyone out of the water. It's just, I, I didn't get that vibe. I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, I'm comparing it, comparing it to Kristen Dye, which I, it's a valid point though, is that, you know, yeah, we are trained as a society to value the soprano over the alto. And like the the high notes in Phantom of the Opera are synonymous. Like if, when you think about the song Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. you think of that last like screaming mm-hmm. whistle note. So I'm like, it doesn't surprise me. But yeah, I, I actually really love Jessica Harper's voice. And it's I think that it's stunning. And I think that I, w- I would have been that person who would have been captivated if it would have jumped from like that chaos with beef to just this low voice on a woman, which 
also I think is kind of a queer undertone because we tend to like yeah, add we masculine, it, right? yeah, and we add like masculine like features to women when it's like queer or whatever. Right. So the fact she's singing so low after like and following this like crazy gender queer weirdo <laughs> yes i think it's that's also like a very queer thing to do um which is also probably why i gravitated towards this movie because very gay i mean and that's probably a good transition anyway because this movie because brian de palma is not gay nope. no but he wrote something that is very gay and he had to have known it right i think he absolutely must like i think he was leaning into it but there's also this weird thing, though, that in the 70s and into the 80s... Like, this wouldn't have been like, considered queer, though, would it? Yeah, all of our, like, leading, like, male yeah. rock stars were all pretty gay. Like, Patton Oswalt has that big thing about, if you like hair metal, like, surprise, you're gay. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that this sort of fits into it when you have kind of, like, the, the Bowie, Freddie Mercury type leading man where there's definitely some queerness going on but like audiences at the time didn't really recognize it as queer they recognized it as cool and then the aids crisis happened and that all went away yes like 100 percent. like it's not even a joke or commentary that's no that, it's, what it's, happened it's factual. It's, yeah it's actually factual good times i must say i feel like one of the most striking sections of this film of which there are a lot there's a lot of really interesting visual stuff happening in this film mm. i love the scene where swan is sitting at his giant record desk oh in the middle of it and he just yes. slowly rotates and you get to see these different interpretations of all of the same song performed by different types of perspectives because it's also like the only time that we see a person of color in the entire film mm-hmm. um you know we get to see like a women's duet version of it so i really appreciated not just you know this idea that he is the mastermind at the very center of the record but also this interpretation of yeah he could literally make any of these acts work it's just a question of which one does he settle on and which one can he capitalize on and i think that's the important thing is about what he can capitalize on because again going back to the idea that if swan decides that it's cool everyone buys into it mm-hmm. he could have done you know the the donna summers ask girl group he chose not to. Yeah. And it's like, how many times throughout our history and throughout our culture have we just chose not to feature a certain artist? Yeah. I mean, like a weird parallel, but I, I look at somebody like like today, like a Lil Nas X, who is a gay black cowboy and nobody wanted him. So he had to do it himself. And then he has the biggest number one single of uh, in history. And that's only because he's not part of that system because the system we have does things like prioritize sopranos prioritize white people and that's that's a very real thing so they're touching on a lot of not just like the film school 101 stuff which obviously i love but also like the very real kind of ugliness of the entertainment industry because it's josie and the pussycats (laughs) it is but you know what else it is and bj i hope that you're gonna get this trace i know you will I could not stop thinking about the apple when I was watching oh, this film a second dude, time. Oh, no, I, I thought the same thing. I was like, because I was getting more apple vibes from this movie than I was Rocky Horror vibes. I'm really, uh, one, thank you for making that reference. Because, <laughs> yeah, yes, I did get it. But two, I don't think anyone's ever said that before. At least not to me. Oh, really? But in my head, I'm like, yes, 
I don't know if your listeners have watched the have watched the Apple. Oh my but god! Anyway. If you have not watched the Apple, it is amazing. It's a dystopian 1970s film, but it's very much about selling out to become a mega success musician. But like theme to Adam and Eve. Yes. Hence the the title. And also choreographed by Nigel Litho, the guy who does like Dancing with the Stars and also So You Think You Can Dance. <gasps> Did not know that. And I it's love it even more. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. The dance sequences in that film are terrible, which I love. Oh, I disagree. I think they're fantastic. And speed. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that movie for the first time um, this year because we did a randothon movie marathon with some friends. And yeah, one of my friends brought the apple as his rando choice. Oh, what a good, good friend pick. to have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best and the worst. But no, I mean, th- there's something, because even in the look of both this movie and the apple, there's something, and I, I use this word lovingly, but it's something very, it's very garish. Oh, yes. Loud, <laughs> like, like, and it, I, 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 I don't want to keep comparing it to Rocky Horror, but it's like the, Rocky Horror has those things, but I feel like the look of it is much more... It's a bit more polished in a way. Yeah, but it's also not as colorful, I feel like. Oh, I don't know. Think about Frankenfurter's Lab. No, it's I know. I know. Pink. But it's wall to wall in this movie. Yeah, this there's more glitter in this one, too. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more glitter. A lot more glitter. I did want to touch on one other thing because I forgot to mention it when it happened. Um, We definitely glossed over the fact that one of the ways that Winslow sneaks back into the paradise before he becomes a titular phantom is that he cross-dresses. And not only does he cross-dress, but he ends up in that harem of backup girls. Yep. Yeah, and he's convincing enough that he can get all the way in with all of them, and they never realize. Yes, and in all honesty, I don't think... They, I don't think Paul Williams would have said anything had it not been that that is Winslow Leach. The only reason he kicks Winslow out is not because he's a man. It's because he's stealing his music and he doesn't want the original, you know, creator to be around. Right. But I feel like everyone let, you know, Winslow pass through because they're like, eh, fuck it. It's fine. Yeah. And I think that that's like weirdly progressive. Um, but but then it goes again. So what do you, what use do you make of him calling him a fag in the beginning, before that, in the beginning of the film? Right. And that's what like, I'm also like a weird person who defends the ending of Sleepaway Camp, like uh-huh. very severely. I, I guess like for followers who don't know me, like, yes, I'm a, like I'm queer, I don't identify as a lesbian because I think there's a lot of weird connotations with that. Mm-hmm. But my girlfriend is non-op transgender, so like she still has a dick. And when I first showed her this movie, she picked up on it as well and was like, "Oh no, everyone who works there let him like let him through because they don't care." And I right. the only reason that you know Winslow's getting kicked out is because he Swan doesn't want him there. And I think the reason that he calls him a fag one is because that was such like common language at this point right and two i think he was just trying to like double down on the insults of like no get the fuck out of here i'm gonna steal your music and i'm going to insult you right it's like he's not he's not homophobic but he's using that word because he knows it's at least i guess for a man it's 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 still a dig at them so it like hits him where it hurts exactly he's trying to emasculate him right yeah absolutely and the fact that he He's like, yeah, good try. Like, you're in a dress right now, so I'm going to, like, continue, like, further to emasculate you. And that's why I think it's so interesting that, you know, because the last time he's in the paradise, he's in a dress. And then when he returns, he's in a People Under the Stairs-esque daddy leather suit. And it's, that's a very interesting thing 
to me. Yeah, because he deliberately selected that costume. There was an entire rack of things he could have picked from, and he was like, Mm -hmm. yes to this leather outfit. Yeah, so he just kind of doubled down on his queerness, and he went from, like... And I I have a lot of feelings about Winslow's character as kind of, like, a queer icon, because he's definitely got, like, this... This like soft boy sort mm-hmm. of queerness the hair. that goes on with him, the hair, um, and his like fascination with Phoenix is not because he's in love with her. He's in love with her voice. Yeah, he's in love with her as an artist, not as a person. Yeah, there's there's a weirdly like asexual vibe to a lot of this movie, and then it's also heavily coated with sexuality in other confusing ways, which I yes. love. Well, and that's yes, your Nightmare yes, Two yes. connection too. You know, it's like Jesse and Lisa aren't in love; they're just really good friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want the best for this person. Yeah. Do we know if um at this time in America was there any like um indecency code or something about cross dressing or anything like that? Because I was actually surprised that um when he got arrested, it was for drugs. I was actually thinking, oh, are they going to do it like he's being like indecent or something because he's cross-dressing and like that's what's going to put him in jail, but I guess the drugs would have like gotten him life in Sing Sing. I'm not sure if the laws existed, but I definitely had the um the same thought of, oh, they're going to they're going to arrest him for this like overt display. Yeah. And the fact that they plant drugs on him Two things. One, I have a lot of weird feelings about the drugs being planted on him by black cops. Yeah, um, I just realized. Considering <laughs> black people were uh, and continue to be over-policed and um, over-criminalized for drug charges. Yeah, that's a very interesting choice on De Palma's part, isn't it? Yes. Almost like a, again, like it's it's uh, slightly progressive, but also terrible. Yeah, like it's weird because on like one hand, I'm like, oh, this feels very like... Like, he's trying to reclaim a lot of pain and, like, allowing these characters to have the position of power. But also, you're making characters who have endured oppression um, for this very act to kind of feed into the very system that oppresses them. Right. And that's gross. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of weird things going on. And I think that's why this movie is so fascinating and why I love it so much. Well, it's like, do you th- how much of that do you think is intentional and how much of that do you think is drug-induced and how much of that do you think is, <laughs> ah, fuck it, I'm just going to do everything. I think De Palma is really savvy. That's, like, I don't know that there's a lot of things that happen by accident in this film. Like, it seems very deliberate. Well, he's also very progressive in a lot of ways that people don't really realize until you look at his catalog as a whole, because I know we talked about Dress to Kill earlier. Right. Dress to Kill is, like, very much giving autonomy to sex workers. And Carrie is, you know, hyper-feminist mm-hmm. and also very much rooted in queer theory. So whether or not De Palma was intentional with his actions, I think just his mentality of who he is as a person is reflecting in his art. Because if you think about it, like, this is... I mean, I don't know that this was at the height of his career, because, again, not a not a huge De Palma person, but you don't see a lot of rock musicals on relatively well-known directors' filmographies, right? right? Like He he had to deliberately choose to make this particular film at this stage in his career and just say, like, yeah, I'm going to lean into all of these weirdly progressive, very sexual vibes. And it's, well, I was going to say it's an original screenplay, and it is an original screenplay, despite the fact that it's, you know, based on family. I mean, you know, yeah. loosely adapted from Family of the Opera. Because, yeah, even like Rocky Horror, because that's adapted from a musical. So mm-hmm. you don't, it's not the same thing. And in my view, almost makes this one like 
shine better. It's more of an original creation. Yeah, it's, I think, and I think what's so interesting too is like, he obviously had to seek out Paul Williams for this, and that choice alone is fascinating to me yeah because if i'm thinking rock musical i am not not going to paul williams (laughs) paul williams but the music is so good and like there's not a song in the movie that i don't love like one of the songs from the rocky horror stage show is cut from the movie because it's i mean i i like it but it's that's fine i like brad's song but um (laughs) that's just me but it's not in the it's not in the movie and that does make Phantom feel a little bit more unique because every song that's in it is there for a reason. Right. And again, in a very expedient 91-minute runtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of that hour-long description we did. It, all, in the, but, <laughs> all in 90 minutes. But that's like, it, it, does, it needs all those words because it's... It, every frame of this movie... There's always something happening. Visually or... Audibly, it's just sensory overload the movie, but in a good way. Yeah, not yeah, like no, we're watching Crank, the nineteen seventy four. Yeah, <laughs> wait, I, wait, Crank is really good. Yeah, but it also feels like you're the one who's done Speed. Yeah. Look, I'm just saying we could probably continue this conversation indefinitely because we haven't even talked to whether or not Phoenix is the least agency driven female protagonist we've ever had on a movie. We haven't talked about we, we the way talk- that. Swan and uh, Winslow are doubles and they're presented as such throughout the entire film up to and including Mm -hmm. their death sequences. Like Mm -hmm. there's just so much to talk about, but here, is there one thing you'll want to talk about either in Joe's laundry list that he just gave us or something that we haven't discussed that you do want to talk about? Yes. BJ, this is, this is your baby. Oh, it is my baby. I love it so much. Um, as much as I do, like as much as I love kind of the Phoenix aspect of like, of, mm-hmm. of her agency um no it is the swan and winslow thing that i love because it very much is that the parallel line of like you cannot exist without me and i cannot exist without you mm, and so queer <laughs> it's so gay so gay and i think that's also what makes their statures being different so fascinating because I admittedly have an affinity for that because my girlfriend's a foot taller than me and very, very thin (laughs) and I'm short and not. So don't worry. It's on my list of couples costumes ideas of things that no one at the party will understand. But I love that. I love that even before he becomes the Phantom, Winslow is obsessed with Swan. And all he wants is his approval and for him to like him. And he... It's why he signs that fucking contract. The the contract that might as well be like the Stone Ten Commandments. It's (laughs) so big and stupid. But but yeah, like it's, it's so interesting to see his obsession with this man and then his willingness to kind of do anything to like like swan is very like regina george from mean girls in that he doesn't like him but he needs his approval mm-hmm. and he yeah. needs him to like him well like even like going to the queerness like they're they're meeting whenever they finally like you know discover like how they're connected swan leaves a sexual encounter with phoenix to go talk to winslow yeah. i feel like that's intentional as well it's yeah. just like oh for yeah, sure i'm gonna go see this d and i try not to um le- like lean into too much of like the phallic imagery carol j clover mentality fucking because... stabs him in the chest and swan is like yeah baby <laughs> yeah he just takes it and then he pulls it out and he's like nah he's like 
he, I only die if you die, like if you die with me and like you can't do this. So he just like willingly accepts penetration. Um, but also like it's a knife. So of course it's a fucking penetrative object. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to disagree a lot with like the dick theory with penetrative weapons. Do you think it's just because it's too, too much of a generalization? I think it's way too much of a generalization. Yeah. It's almost too easy at this point. Yeah, I think I think so. Like, because if you if you even try to argue, like a gun is penetrative. Like that's how it fucking works. So every weapon, (laughs) every weapon at some point is some sort of penetrative thing. They can't all be allegories for dicks. Uh, BJ, if you do go as Swan for Halloween, can you please wear the top hat from the scene where he introduces Beef at the? (laughs) God, it's so good. Because that was definitely like, oh, hello, Willy Wonka. Yes, come through to my magical candy land, <laughs> the paradise. That is like, it is just like him tiptoeing into like, hey, kids, you like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Just fucking wait until you see my stage show. <laughs> uh, okay, are you two ready for this game? I'm not ready, but I'm gonna play. Okay, so your game is I would like the two of you to tell me the origin story of a young beef. <laughs> <laughs> where did he come from how did he get this way where did he get those shoes okay i'm gonna have to go first because i don't think my story will be better than bj's i think beef was birthed from the butthole of a fairy <laughs> oh, God. in a fart of glitter and grew up like thumbelina in a little flower and grew so big that the fairies couldn't take care of him anymore. And so he turned to a life of cocaine and rock and roll. As one does. I don't know. That, that, I, I, there you go. That's it. Okay. <laughs> so the Thumbelina origin story with a <laughs> dash of cocaine. Got it. <laughs> BJ, what say you? I think that Beef grew up a young lad somewhere in the Midwest, probably Ohio, because I live here and I see what it does to young queer kids. Mm. And he was definitely the uh, the quote-unquote fruity kid in class. And his parents owned a butcher shop, maybe a slaughterhouse. Maybe that's where his fascination with the aggressiveness comes from. But he's definitely rural Midwest, which is why he wears, you know, antler belts, because he just has the antlers lying around Mm -hmm. from, you know, hunting with dad. As you do. As you do. And one day he went to a record shop and learned about rock and roll music and completely fell in love with it and took those records home. And his dad was like, no, we're not having this devil music in here. And he's like, well, then fuck you, dad. You don't understand me. And he (laughs) left and he went out to L.A. to become a rock star, but he doesn't actually know how to be a rock star. So he's just imitating everything that he's seeing and putting on glitter because he thinks that's what he's supposed to. And he's living in a shitty neighborhood and there's a lot of drag queens and sex workers. And he's like, you know what? That looks cool and fabulous. So I'm going to do the same thing. And then he finally gets discovered and like, hey, what do you call yourself? And he can't let go of the fact that he still needs approval from his dad, the butcher. So he calls himself Beef. Beef. I like it. <laughs> I'm so impressed by the detail of that description. I love it. You're welcome. <laughs> I literally just pulled that out of my asshole. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Wait, the same asshole. The same asshole that Beef came out of in Trace's story? No, there's a lot less glitter in my asshole. <laughs> Okay, well, my version, uh, I do not have the level of detail probably of either of yours, (laughs) is in honor of you, BJ. Oh, my gosh. 
I'm going to propose that Beef got his start as an amateur wrestler. Uh, yes. Uh, and this is where the glitter comes from. This is where the outfits come from. The ostentatious nature of his swagger. And he needed a wrestling name. And all he could say was that he was a tall hunk of beef. I mean, I do refer to professional wrestling as beef slamming, so... Oh my god, do they? <laughs> beef slamming, uh, muscle ballet, either one works. Y'all, I've never seen a wrestling match in my life. I'm going to change your life, <laughs> and this actually works really well with beef. Um, I'm going to send you a video of a wrestler named Joey Ryan. Is he the, the one who caters to the gays? Um, yes, and he's not gay. There's actually a lot of them that cater to the gays because they are gay. Joey Ryan caters to gays, but he's not gay. Okay. He looks like Magnum P.I. Um, <laughs> With the stash. And he, yes, he has the stash and he has the world's strongest dick um, in the sense that people will try to like punch him in the dick, but then they'll pretend like it really hurt their hand. <laughs> or, or in some instances, people will go to punch it and he'll flex and then it, gives the appearance that they're stuck to his dick and then without using his hands he will flex and the person holding his hand will do a flip and fall implying that his dick flipped them it is brilliant (laughs) it is just the greatest thing in the entire world and it is beef would 100 like joey ryan would 100 percent be like beef Ugh, that's brilliant. Uh, that's amazing. I love I a love dick it. flip. That's great. It's so wonderful. He also coined uh, a move called the boob plex, which is a suplex performed on a woman where when you grip, you get him by the titties and then you throw him over your head. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, it's incredible. I'm so, yes, please send me that. I will send you all of it. And listeners, I know that you probably were like super into wrestling when you were like nine years old come back to it it's gotten so gay and awesome mm-hmm. i'm so intrigued by this i didn't i didn't know i did not know mm-hmm. yep it's wonderful oh, yeah. there's also a wrestler called effie and he wears trunks that say daddy in the barbie font <laughs> oh my god oh it's my like god. It's the fucking do you best. think that they just discovered like oh there's actually a lot of money and cultural capital behind the gays so they're a good audience to think about going after no i think it's like a lot of queer kids who grew up watching wrestling being like this is gay as fuck and all of their friends were like no it's not um <laughs> they grew up and said i'm gonna show you how gay it is and then became wrestlers nice well i'm on the outside looking in. i see a lot of people like in our horror community like talk about wrestling is it sunday night i don't know it's Sunday, monday. monday night actually it's every night of the week but monday's the big one yeah <laughs> but i'm always like huh all right and no it makes a lot of sense like they're they're both the bastard genres of you know their perspective yeah. categories but also there's this amazing npr article about um, how rupaul's drag race is on monday and so is monday night raw and how they're the same show <laughs> but on different ends of the gender presentation spectrum it's like they're all fighting for titles that aren't real they all have catchphrases they all have elaborate costumes half of the entertainment is not actually what they're doing like on display it's like the side conversations and right yeah and then it's like this presentation of like hyper masculinity or hyper femininity but it's all a character like these are not the real people that's that's a character they're playing oh God, that's a podcast just, in and of itself yeah wrestling and drag are the same wrestling super gay love it Amazing. <laughs> uh well i think that's gonna wrap up our discussion on fam of the paradise before we officially wrap up and talk about what we're gonna cover next week bj 
first, thank you so yes. much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, letting me finally talk about something I love so much. But, BJ, do you want to plug anything? Are you working on anything? Do you have something coming up? Also, share, share your Twitter. Sure. Um, really, the only thing that I have going on right now is I have uh, two things that are going around festivals right now. I have a queer uh, horror superhero style short film called Labrys, um that's making the rounds at festivals. It'll be playing at Anomaly in Rochester as well as Axe Wound in, I think, Vermont mm -hmm. later this year. And then I also uh, contributed a segment to the horror anthology Death Simber with my filmmaking partner Zach Schilwachter, and that's also hitting festivals all over the place. Um, I do know um, some festivals are splitting the movie up because it's very long, so I'm not sure well, I guess there's 24 segments or something, right? Yes, there's 24 because it's like an advent calendar. But ours is uh, ours is in there as well. So check that out. Um, and then, as always, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my handle is just my name, BJ Colangelo. I sound like such an ass for saying it, but like, make sure that it's the one with the verified check mark because every once in a while, some assheads like try to do like BJ Colangelo underscore because they try oh, to like right. attribute like fucked up stuff to my name because people are jerks and hate women um so <laughs> make sure a garbage fire. well i am glad that your yeah. handle is your name i appreciate the simplicity of just using your name as a twitter handle shut up trace <laughs> you know what dry up tubbo <laughs> i actually had that line too in all caps in my notes but as, <laughs> dry up one. tubbo <laughs> i can't do it i can't do it just casual fat phobia it's the 70s yeah uh, well, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I'm at B Stole My Remote, which is my legal name. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't believe you haven't changed it in all these years, but it's fine. I love it. If you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. You can email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com or check out our Facebook group uh, that you can talk to other listeners on. Uh, if you have two seconds, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating, or if you have longer, leave us a review. Uh, you can also go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers for more bonus content. I'm sorry, for bonus content, not more bonus content. No, um, more, more! More! Uh, where you can sign up for exclusive episodes covering recent horror films like Zombieland Double Tap, and we will have one on Dr. Sleep coming out in a few weeks as well. Uh, Joe, mm -hmm. what are we covering next week? As we leave camp month or camp marathon yeah eight weeks later we are finally out the door except are we really because we're I dropping a special bonus episode oh, of right. our live recording from fantastic fest this friday for the what is it 34th anniversary 34th anniversary of a nightmare, nightmare on street, street, street 2 yeah so you will get to hear that and listen for the record scratch it's oh yeah a very entertaining time we're not going to elaborate people can just listen i'll just say yeah, five minutes in you will i don't want to say cr you're not going to cringe but you probably will cringe a little bit yeah i'm just, so excited just you know pull over <laughs> to the side of the road at around the five minute mark and you're good to go and then next week uh we're still on our shit and we're going to be talking about Possibly the most homoerotic film we've ever done. Uh, we're talking the 25th anniversary of Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> Which I haven't seen since I was a kid. So I'm quite looking forward to revisiting this. I just spoke at a, con a queer geek convention about homoeroticism and vampires and had like a 
15 minute segment just dedicated <laughs> to interview with a vampire. Nice. Can you just send me your notes? I'm going to crib off of yeah, them because I, I don't like to do homework. That's fine. Okay. I'll do it for you. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, so yes, everyone, you have lots to look forward to in the next week, uh, with the, uh, obviously this episode that we just recorded and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Interview with the Vampire, we're some busy bees. But on that note, I think we can finally cross out Phantom of the Paradise and wish all of you a happy Halloween. Yes, stay spooky and we'll cross out horror queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.